If you, if you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one in the rack in front of you, and you're welcome to it. Take it home and read it, and we'd love to give that to you as a gift. Uh, but open Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, there should be a note sheet also in your folder that'll have the verses we're going to be looking at, and they'll also come up on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, writes this, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is the light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So ever since chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has been teaching that those who are believers in Jesus ought to live differently than those who are not believers in Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 1, he said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And that's really the main point of the book. God has a plan. And his plan is to call people to become part of a new humanity, a new community of people that he is creating through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we have responded to that call, if we've put our trust in Jesus, if we've become part of this new community, then that's going to change how we live. So ever since chapter 4, this book has been describing what this new changed life looks like. And there is a lot to it. There's a lot to it. Because our lives are very complex, aren't they? When you think about all the things you do besides what you're doing right now here on Sunday morning, you know, gathering for worship and getting into God's Word. Think about all the other things you do the rest of the week. Think about all the different relationships that you have. You know, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors... Think about all the different parts to your life. And being a believer in Jesus is meant to make a difference in all of those things. Every single one of them. So there's a lot to it. There is so much to learn. So much. 
Becoming a Christian is not simply an event. It starts with an event. When we first put our trust in Jesus and we experience what the Bible calls a new birth, a spiritual birth, a new creation, we sang about that with the verse from 2 Corinthians, being a new creation. But once we're born spiritually, we still have a lot of growing up to do. And I feel I can't stress this too much because I think it's really easy for people to kind of think extremely on this. If we think, for example, that because we've put our faith in Jesus, we should be perfect by now. And we're frustrated and we're depressed that we're not perfect yet. Or, at the other extreme, we think that because we put our faith in Jesus, we're good, we're done. Nothing more to do. Well, either of those kinds of thinking, if we think that way, we are very confused. Because that is not the way it is. Okay, back in chapter 2, verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So there's the event. There's when we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved. Past tense. All right, we, we've experienced this transition, this new creation from spiritual life, uh, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Then you get to verse 10, and it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, created, there's the event, to do good works. Now it's not talking about the event of creation, it's talking about the purpose of our creation, what we're created for. A lifetime of doing good works that God has for us to do. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. We all have to grow up. We have to grow up. And growth, you probably have noticed, is a process. Nobody gets born and then is simply mature and ready for everything life can throw at them. We have to grow. Growth is a process. We have to learn how to live out this new life. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If living the way we're being told to live were automatic, that is, if you just put your faith in Jesus and whoosh, it just happens, then the second half of this book is completely unnecessary. In fact, much of the Bible is completely unnecessary. But it's not unnecessary. It's there. We need to read it. We need to learn from it how to trust Jesus and what that looks like in every single area of life. It's big. It's big. And what I love about today's passage is that what it teaches us about living this new life can be summed up pretty simply. And here you go. Believers in Jesus need to show His love and to shine His light. There you go. Show his love, shine his light. That's it. You can tune out for the rest of the message now. No, don't do that. All right, because there's, there's a lot to this. All right, uh, show his love, shine his light. Look at verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Live a life of love. Show his love. Verse 8. <coughs> Excuse me. For you were once darkness, 
but now you are light in the Lord, live as children of light. So show his love, shine his light. And then the rest of the passage makes it very clear that the love we're supposed to show and the light we're supposed to shine are the love and light of Jesus. It's his love, it's his light that this world desperately needs. It's his love, it's his light that we desperately need that will transform our lives, make them different, make them worthy of his calling. So we're going to take these one at a time and think them through. First, show his love. Show his love. Now to do this, we have got to understand and we have got to adopt the true standard of what love actually is. And this is actually quite a challenge because in our world, we use the word love in so many different ways. I mean, you, you can love your sweetheart, you can love your family, you can love your dog. You can love pizza. You can love a movie, a f your friends, a song. I mean, just anything that happens to please you, you can say you love it. Oh, I love that. What I mean is, I, I like how it makes me feel. I, I enjoy it. Okay? And see, that's the biggest problem with most definitions of love they have to do with what somebody else or something else does for me. How they make me feel. And that is just exactly backwards from God's definition of love. And you know, this is something that's very important to get. It's God who defines what love actually is. Not psychologists, not journalists, not songwriters, not romance novelists. We are not going to learn what love really is by watching The Bachelorette. Okay? God defines love. God defines love. You know, actually, that's true of anything. If God defines it, that's what it is. We may say, well, I don't like that definition. We want to change it. We want to fool it. We're just playing games. We're just playing word games. If God defines it, that's what it is. I mean, that's part of what it means that He's God. God creates. God determines. God defines. We don't. You know, one of the most important things that can ever happen to us is when we finally get it. When we finally understand and we finally realize and we finally accept that God is God and we're not. That's a huge point in life to come to realize that. Our job is not to be God. And yet we spend so much of our lives trying to be God of our own lives, or, or even worse, trying to be God for other people. We're not God. God's God. 
Our job is not to be God. It says here, our job is to imitate God. The way children imitate their parents. Imitate his character. I mean, you, if you have kids, you know how that works. They imitate you. They imitate the way you talk, what you say. It can be very disturbing. Because <clears throat> they're these perfect little imitators. Well, that's how we're supposed to be with God. To imitate his character. It's his love. It's his kind of love that we are called to show. Okay, so what does his kind of love look like? It looks like Jesus giving himself up for us on the cross. That's what love looks like. Verse 2, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. See that? Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Apostle John says much the same thing. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So you see, love really isn't about how other people make us feel. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong, you know, with those good feelings that you might have, you know, that someone gives you that, you know, just to be in their presence makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. That's great. But don't make that the definition of what love is, that fuzzy feeling, because the fuzzy feeling won't last. It's not about what somebody, how somebody else makes us feel. Love, genuine love, is what we do because we have someone else's best interests at heart. Just as Jesus had our best interests at heart when he died to rescue us from the judgment we deserve because of our sin. Love is a willingness and a heartfelt willingness, okay? I'm not talking here about grudgingly doing our duty, but to genuinely put somebody else's best interests at heart and a willingness to sacrifice for their best interests. And, you know, that sacrifice might just be an inconvenience. Yeah, okay, I'll do the dishes. I don't really want to do the dishes. I'd rather do something else, but I'll do it. It's inconvenient, but I'll do it because I love you. Sound like a martyr. That's just an inconvenience. That's nothing. But it could be something much bigger than that. Dr. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary for many years. And uh, after he'd served in this position for, I think, 20, 22 years or so, he resigned his position when his wife, Muriel, who suffered from Alzheimer's disease, got to the point where uh, she needed his full-time attention. And I want to read to you a little bit from the speech that he gave in chapel when he announced to everyone uh, his decision. He said, I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one because circumstances dictated it. 
Muriel now, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost always happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terrified. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger and she's in a lot of distress. But when I am with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word, but as I have said, it's the only fair thing. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I would still be in her debt. However, there is much more. It's not that I have to. It's that I get to. I love her very dearly. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. Christ-like love is looking out for the best interests of someone else, whatever it costs. So if we're going to show His love, then we've got to adopt the true standard of what love really is. We've got to know what it is to show it. But there's more than that. There's more than that. We also need to flee from counterfeit loves. You've got to flee from counterfeits. You probably noticed as I was reading the passage that it makes a pretty big deal about avoiding immorality and impurity and greed, which in this context, greed is probably not a craving for money. It's probably a greedy desire for sexual satisfaction. But why? Why make, this big, make a big deal out of this? He tells us to live a life of love, and then he tells us don't, don't have anything to do with this stuff. I think, I think it's because immorality is usually justified as an expression of love. But it's not. That's not what it is. It's a counterfeit. And I want to be very clear here about what we're talking about. This passage is not negative about sexuality and, and the true meaning, the true experience of sexuality in the context that God designed it. We've got to be clear what we're talking about. The word translated sexual immorality means sexual activity outside, with someone outside of marriage. So premarital sex, adulterous sex, homosexual sex, any sexual relationship outside of marriage as God defines it is immorality. And we are supposed to avoid it like the plague. There must not even be a hint of it in our lives, according to this. Not even a hint. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee. Flee from sexual immorality. What does flee mean? What if I told you there was a bomb here under the table? It was going to go off in 10 seconds. What would you do? Flee. You wouldn't say, oh really? Can I look at it? You'd run. That's what flee means. Run. Get away from it. Don't see how close you can get to it without actually sinning. Oh, I think we could go a little further and still be okay. I think we could get a little closer to it and be okay. No, 
You run the opposite direction as fast as you can. We're not even to joke about it. Did you see that? All that, the obscenity and foolish conversation and coarse jesting, that's what that's talking about. Joking about immorality. Joking about having an affair. Joking. Don't even. Don't make light of it. It's not funny. It's not funny. And yet, how often have we heard that as long as two people really love each other, sex is fine whether they're married or not. Marriage, that's irrelevant. As long as they love each other. So a guy says to his girlfriend, hey baby, if you really love me, you'll give yourself to me. Girls, I want to tell you, if a guy ever says that to you, whatever else he may be thinking about, he is not thinking about what is best for you. He's not. And therefore, he is not being loving when he says that, no matter how charming he sounds. He wants something from you that you have no business giving him until you're both willing to stand up in front of a church full of people and pledge yourselves and make promises to live with each other and love each other faithfully for the rest of your lives. That's when sex takes on its true God-intended meaning within the context, within the covenant of that promise called marriage. You say, well, what's the big deal? What is the big deal? Well, I'll tell you. We're going to actually get to it later in chapter 5. But the quick answer is this. God created marriage for an amazing purpose. He created marriage to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and His people. That's what marriage is for. A relationship characterized by sacrificial love and complete faithfulness. And immorality ruins the picture. Because immorality is not about sacrificial love. It is not about complete faithfulness. It's about selfishness. It's about self-indulgence regardless of the consequences. Not to mention the fact that it totally messes up people's lives. It hurts a lot of people. And so, for anybody to try to justify sex outside of marriage as a loving thing, they're just speaking empty words. Just empty words. You try to tell a child, you try to tell a child whose father abandoned his mother to go have a fling with another woman. You tell him that what that was all about was love. No way. It's a lie. It's empty words. It's a counterfeit. No matter how appealing it might seem in the moment. See, that's the thing about counterfeits. They're convincing. If it's a good counterfeit, it's persuasive. But it's still a counterfeit. So flee the counterfeit. Nothing to do with it. Embrace the true standard of God's love. That's what we got to do. We got to show His love. Show His love. All right. And then second, shine His light. Shine His light. Verses eight through ten. 
Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. And this is important. This is an important balance to what we were just talking about. Because living this changed life that God wants His people to live, this is not just about avoiding evil. It's about doing positive things that reflect God's character, His goodness, His righteousness, His truth. Some people seem to think that Christianity is all about not doing bad things. If I just don't do those bad things, then I'm a Christian. No, Christians definitely shouldn't do bad things, but not doing evil is not what makes anybody a Christian. It's not what you don't do that makes you a Christian. What makes anybody a Christian is Jesus Christ and putting our trust in Him for forgiveness of our sin and relying on Him to shine His light and to show His love to demonstrate His goodness through us. And I think this is really important because people who don't know Jesus yet, they can always debate our arguments. Right? You know, we can talk about the existence of God, the evidence for that. We can talk about the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. We can talk about the reliability of the Bible. They can argue with us on all those things. But you can't argue with goodness. You can't do it. Like that story about Dr. McWilkin and his love for his wife. How can you argue with that? How can you listen to that and say, no, that's, that's not good? You can't. It's beautiful. And the reason it's beautiful is because it reflects the beauty, the goodness of God. So when we reflect that, when we shine that, and that's really the point here, doing good things, and I'm talking about good as God defines good, as God is good, doing good things is like shining light into darkness. Goodness has a way of revealing things that aren't good. I mean, I don't know of a husband who could listen to Dr. McQuilkin talk about his love for his wife and not feel like, man, I need to do a better job of loving my wife. Goodness. It shows up what isn't good. Here's a classic example of how this works. Um, pregnancy resource centers have completely changed the debate on abortion. It used to be that abortion advocates would accuse Christians of not caring about women with unplanned pregnancies. They can't do that anymore because Christians have stepped up and they have provided health care and they have provided adoption services and they have provided all kinds of practical help to women and their babies. And so it's just not true that women with unplanned pregnancies don't have any choice except abortion. That's not true. By doing good to these women, by doing good to these babies, these Jesus followers have shined His light and they have revealed that abortion is not the compassionate thing it pretends to be. 
And this, this principle is why we Christians need to get serious about honoring marriage and making our marriages as biblical and healthy as we can by relying on Jesus as much as we can. You know, this whole debate about the redefinition of marriage, one of the arguments is that Christians are hypocrites on this issue. We're hypocrites because we say we believe that marriage is designed by God. But then we act like we don't really believe that. Because our rate of divorce is the same as people who don't believe that. Now, if we're going to claim that what God says about marriage is the way that it ought to be, then we've got to live it. We've got to live it. We've got to rely on Christ in our marriages. We've got to demonstrate His love. We've got to demonstrate His faithfulness. And by doing so, shine the light of Jesus to a world that's becoming very dark on this issue. Now, why would we want to do this? Why would we want to shine His light and expose the fruitless deeds of darkness, as it calls them here? Why do we do that? Do we want to make people feel bad? Do we want to condemn them? No. We want to wake them up to the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That needs to be our heart in all of this. A desire that people whose eyes are closed to Jesus, who are spiritually dead, who are unresponsive to His beauty, to His glory, just like we used to be, that His light would shine through us and wake them up. You know, Jesus said this to His followers, Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise not you, your Father in heaven. We shine the light of Jesus, not to make ourselves look good. We shine the light of Jesus, not to make other people look bad. We shine the light of Jesus to make God look good. To make God look good so that people will see His beauty and they will believe in His one and only Son. And they will have life in His name. So once again, as happens pretty much every time we open this book, what do we see? We see the need for a radical reliance on Jesus. I mean, that's the heartbeat of this book. God's plan really is a person. His plan is a person on whom we learn to rely more and more completely. 
To be the people He wants us to be, to live the life He wants us to live, there's only one way. That's a daily, moment-by-moment, radical dependence on Him, on Jesus. Because it's His light that's got to shine, and it's His love that we've got to show. So let's, uh, let's pray right now. I just want to give you an opportunity, even as I take the opportunity myself, to say once again, Lord, the only way this is going to happen is if you do it in me. And right now I'm just saying, Lord Jesus, please, make it real for me. Make it real for everyone here who wants to know you and trust you. God, help us see how big that is in every area of our life. And we would have a passion to show your love. Lord, it's so big. It's so, we're just not able to do it to love the way you love apart from your spirit, apart from us relying on you. And to shine your light, to demonstrate your goodness, your righteousness, your truth. So right now, we just want to say we are not able to be this way without you. Shine your light. Show your love through us. We pray in Jesus' name.